So, Michael, what'll you have to drink? Well, it's about time. <laughs> about it. time, someone asked me, and I'll have a glass of Tremonti Pignoletto. Thank you very much. So specific, but we can make that happen. Hello, this is Where is the Love. I am Michael Ware with Melissa Ware. How are you doing? Uh, you just took my I'm Melissa Ware away from me. So, yeah, so I did. I was listening. I can't remember. It was probably the Brunigs. That's the main podcast I listened to. Okay. Uh, and I think it makes it for a cleaner intro for the first person to speak to say I'm, you know, their name with and then the other person comes in as like a confirmation that they're that they're they're in the room you don't like that you want to say your name yeah say my name say my name yeah (laughs) all right well that'll be the last time we do that i mean this this is exactly what i get for for once uh i'm asked what i want to drink and then it all goes downhill from there well i think you're like oh this is my moment to shine i just Got a, got a drink in my hand, and now I'm taking your intro. Yeah, for real. Okay. Uh, yeah, well, it is talk good. About this week. Yeah, it is good to be talking with you. Yeah. I mean, am I allowed to talk about what we're talking about this week? Well, first, I, don't know. I should. Are you? First, I should. <laughs> first, I should say, gosh, what an amazing time with Annie F. Downs in uh, Philadelphia, although. The Philadelphia audience was very keen uh, to make clear that actually the event was not in Philadelphia. It was in Kings of uh, King of Prussia. Yes. Um, and they seemed very set on that that we're not Philadelphia, and so um, and so Philly it was, adjacent. It was great to be at yeah yeah the Philly adjacent. Uh, king of Prussia or Kings of Prussia. I don't know I, I if there's... I think it's King. I don't know yeah. if there's one King or, or many, but... Um, um, yeah, I don't remember. But it was a great event. I so love and appreciate Annie. Um, and it's just been so great to work with her uh, over the years. And, and what a great friend. And I hope that folks will catch her on the rest of this... Uh, on the rest of her tour. Uh, she'll be over the next few weeks you know, continuing to move across the country. And so uh, you could check out Annie's website and uh, uh, get get your tickets. Um, but yeah, it was fun. I don't know. Uh, I know you saw the, you weren't able to uh, make it, but uh, there was a confetti explosion, confetti cannons at the end of the event. It looked like Annie and I were running for office. Uh, it was very exciting. The pictures look cool. It's all confetti. It, it was a great event. Yeah, it did look like you were announcing with the confetti pictures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so that was fun. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I really, really like that. The other thing, uh, we announced uh, and released this past week a report yes. that you and I wrote. Yep. First time that we've had a byline on, on something like this. Yeah, we co-wrote. 
we, we co-authored a report uh, with the support of and in partnership with Interfaith Youth Corps on uh, evangelicals and interfaith engagement. Yeah. Um, uh, we'll have a launch event for that report hosted by IFIC. We'll have a, a panel of uh, speakers, including uh, Shirley Hookstra from CCCU, our, our good friend, and uh, and uh, a number of uh, other folks. My friend Steve Besner, a pastor down in, in Texas. Uh, we'll have one of the students from the incredible Ansem Center at yeah. University of Minnesota. Um, uh, and Mark Diamas, uh, wonderful pastor and, and leader. And so really looking forward to that event on Monday. Um, and you can uh, 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 tweet it about it. Uh, you can go to IFYC's website uh, and uh, attend the event. And you can also read the report uh, there. But um, it was it was great working together on it. I know we're really proud of of the report and think it's an important important topic. Yeah, I think it's a really good contribution to interfaith engagement right now at this point, especially where we are in the in the U.S. And to not count out evangelicals when you're trying to do this kind of important work. Yeah, no, that's good. So hope folks will check that out and hope uh, uh, it might be of of some use to you. Uh, we really intended for the report. Uh, to serve the church and also civic leaders who might, you know, find themselves banging their head against the wall wondering uh, why evangelicals aren't participating in interfaith uh, engagement work that they're putting on. And uh, one of the one of the potential answers is uh, that it might be their fault. <laughs> like, like yeah, uh, that there are actually some barriers that uh, civic leaders, those pulling together interfaith engagement work, uh, put up that make it less likely that evangelicals will uh, will will participate, and so hope uh, you'll you'll read the report and that it will uh, help uh, facilitate uh, more interfaith collaboration uh, for for the common good uh, around the country. Uh, Melissa, we have a couple things we wanted to discuss. That's right. On the show today, uh, this will be our second topic, but. Oh, my goodness, uh, an incredible cover story for the New York Times Magazine uh, on uh, anti-ambition and sort of uh, the future of work. Uh, uh, New York Times Magazine has a full issue uh, uh, this Sunday uh, on the future of work. This is the lead essay. We, we both really thought the world of it and can't wait to discuss it. But before we do that, I want to talk about uh, something that uh, leaked over the weekend, uh, and that is uh, a, a DCCC poll. The DCCC is the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, uh, basically the, uh, a committee that's responsible uh, for promoting the election of Democrats in the House. So there's a DSCC, the Senatorial Campaign Committee. The DCCC does the House. Republicans have the same sort of structure on, uh, on their side. But uh, over the last week, a, uh, a poll uh, was uh, re released, or rather uh, Politico obtained the poll and, and reported on it. Now, the Democrats uh, quote from the article, and this is a political article by Sarah Ferris and Allie Mutnick, uh, uh, opening, quote, uh, Democrats' own research shows that some battleground voters think the party is preachy, 
judgmental, and focused on culture wars, according to documents obtained by Politico. And the party's House campaign arm had a stark warning for Democrats, unless they more forcefully confront the GOP's alarmingly potent culture war attacks. From, culture, uh, from critical race theory to defunding the police, they risk losing significant ground to Republicans in the midterms. Uh, Melissa, the approach in this uh, memo that uh, was generated uh, with the support of the DCCC has recommendations that will not be uncommon uh, to listeners of the show, to mm -hmm. readers of yeah. our Substack, uh, and you could subscribe to that at reclaiminghope.substack.com, and it's not foreign to our conversations. Mm -hmm. uh, the DCCC is, and this is another quote from the article, recommending a new strategy to endangered members uh, and their teams, uh, which is uh, that they can't simply ignore the attacks, particularly when they're playing at a disadvantage. Uh, the data showed that Democrats could mostly regain the ground lost to Republicans if they offered a strong rebuttal to the political hits. Uh, and so uh, Republicans... Uh, uh, their lead on the generic ballot, which basically means it's uh, it's not tied to candidates. It's just, you know, would you vote for the Republican or for the Democrat uh, in, in these congressional districts? Uh, the Republican lead on the generic ballot balloons to 14 points um, uh, uh, from four points uh, when sort of Republican attacks are, are introduced to voters. But when voters heard a Democratic response, uh, uh, the Republicans' edge narrowed back down to six points. So in other words, when the, when the attacks received a, a rebuttal, it only uh, responded to a sort of a two-point increase in Republican support as opposed to a 10-point. I mean, so uh, obviously I have a lot of thoughts. We mm -hmm. talked about this uh, during the McAuliffe race, which yep. is... Uh, so, so I think I want to make a few points. One, this is not a new strategy. This is the strategy that Democrats take when they're out of power or when they fear, fear they're going to be out of power. And then when they win elections, they forget that this is the kind of approach that got them there. Yep. And we do the same cycle over and over and over again. They, 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 uh, they win then they start to build up the narrative that the country is like inevitably and always on their side. Like they won not only the previous arguments, but sort of Democrats have won the arguments for the future and therefore can like press forward without really paying attention to, uh, to Republicans or voters who aren't with them. It's sort of like we, we can just, we, we can transform the country with just the support that we have because we, we won an election or two. Uh, and then they lose. Uh, and then all of a sudden it's, uh, you know, we need to, we need to listen. We need to do a listening tour. We need to, you know, we weren't attentive to uh, uh, sort of the issues that matter most to voters. So, so that's the first thing. I think the second thing I, I, I just want to um, uh, uh, point out, which is, it's so important not to impose um, your perception 
of what Republicans and Democrats are, particularly if that perception is uh, due to your Twitter consumption or to your highly sort of dialed in reading and, and media consumption, really important not to impose that conception on voters broadly. I think this was what happened in Virginia, which is Democrats thought that if they just framed Youngkin as being concerned about one thing, then voters would uh, would uh, or or if they if they framed Youngkin as sort of being one way or, or supporting one set of ideas or having one priority, uh, that uh, that's how voters would perceive it, and they learned oh v- voters are are actually not hearing it that way. Voters do not hear parents' parents' involvement in education and only hear uh, or even primarily hear about sort of uh, banning um, any discussion of uh, uh, racial injustice. They're thinking, hey, I'd like to know what my kids are uh, 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 learning in school. And it often seems like that process is made to be more difficult than it needs to be. But if Democrats are only sort of responding to Democratic caricatures caricatures of Republican arguments, as opposed to responding to the way voters are processing Republican arguments, um, then then yeah, they're going to be in for serious serious defeat. And that's the main message that I got from uh, from this this memo, which is um, uh, uh, you you. you uh, will not be able to coast by in this environment, sort of uh, blaming Trump for everything, uh, uh, sort of talking about Republican extremism without responding to concerns about uh, Democratic ideas and the way that Democratic ideas are sort of understood by significant portions of the electorate. And so, for instance, the article you know, refers to like on immigration, Democrats should emphasize uh, their work to keep the border safe. Well, that's that's not a new approach. This isn't a this memo isn't proposing anything new. It's proposing that Democrats turn back the dial to like six years ago. Um, so, Melissa, I don't know if you had any thoughts. I, I did think it was, you know, as we get closer to the midterms, we're now, gosh, eight months away. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I, this is going to be in, uh, obviously uh, in, uh, midterm conversation is going to move to the center of our politics. This memo seems like, um, you know, it got it got leaked somehow. Maybe the documents were left at a bar uh, uh, unwittingly, mm-hmm. uh, maybe. But it also seems very plausible to me uh, that. Uh, it was leaked intentionally uh, that either yeah. the polling folks or the D trip themselves wanted to make sure that the broader Democratic coalition understood how serious sort of uh, the the landscape was and the head uh, uh, the headwinds were uh, going into uh, he- heading into November. Yeah. Uh, do you have any any thoughts? Basically, like somebody standing at the top of the Titanic shouting iceberg straight ahead. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. So I have not checked if he's had any kind of reaction on Twitter or whatever. But the first person I thought of when I when I when I read this um, 
when I read this article after I saw it on Twitter was David Shore is just patting himself on the back right now because this is for sure. the polling and not just his own polling that he's yeah. running or analyzing. It's from DCCC. Yeah. Um, which basically says that, you know, everything that he's been talking about for the past six to 12 months has been completely right. Um, about what, three months ago, Ezra Klein and, uh, interviewed yeah. David Shore, and we featured it in the top five, I think. I'm nearly certain we yeah, featured we did. it in the top five. Yeah. So I'll go back and find that um, article and, and put it in the show notes. But he was the first person I thought of when I, when I read these stats. And also, just to be clear, um, with this polling, um, in terms of the voters who were not only most swayable, but the ones who sort of had the more negative reactions to, or the ones who would say, like, you know, the Democrats are only talking about culture war issues, et cetera. It's center-left, independents, and Hispanic voters. I might be forgetting one other category. Um, but that's really interesting, too. And when I saw Hispanic voters, it also made me think about we're once again, yet again, starting to see the spate of think pieces on the Latino voter, the Hispanic vote, and how do you break it down and how do you actually work it out um, and how do you actually attract voters who don't vote in a way that you think that they would, which is basically like the underlying, like reading between the lines, sort of like thought process that seems to be happening a lot amongst Democrats. Um, I remember back in the 2020 campaign, you had said that you thought that of, of all the candidates, of all the people that Senator Bernie Sanders seemed to have like the best handle on Hispanic voters. I yeah. Can't, but I forget why. Well, so it was pr principally I was thinking at the level of organization. I thought that right. in 2020 uh, his um, his campaign did a great job uh, relative to the rest of the field on being on the ground, being in tune with uh individual sort of Hispanic communities. I think that showed up in states like Nevada and yeah. some other places. It's one of the reasons why he was such a challenge for uh, uh, Joe Biden, uh, uh, why he was the last, you know, alternative standing. Um, uh, and, you know, it's because Bernie has now he ran a, a bit of a different campaign in 2020. He tried to broaden his appeal to some of the establishment sort of Democratic you know, um, uh, uh, activist groups mm -hmm. where he often hasn't performed that 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 well, um, but but core to Bernie has always been econ economic issues yeah. and building sort of a broad working class coalition. And mm -hmm. look, this is the debate that that we're going to have in the Democratic Party for a long time. It's a debate that is uh, roiling the the, the party. Some that we're seeing in San Francisco with these mm -hmm. uh, with these school board uh, yes. seats, um, we're seeing it at the mayoral level, which is really interesting. Which is, you know, whether it's Lori uh, Lightfoot uh, oh, yeah. in mm -hmm. Chicago or London Breed in San Francisco, you're start, or Eric Adams in New York, yes. we're seeing these mayors of, you know, solidly Democratic uh, cities, but. Is cities that uh, with politics that um, don't always mirror um, a sort of uh, uh, the Beltway sort of activist uh, groups, and you know I think those are going to be tensions moving forward. Uh, we noted in the political brief this week 
Speaker Pelosi said yes. defund the police is not yep. a democratic policy. But Cori Bush was out saying just the opposite. And we're, uh, uh, Cori Bush being a, a Democratic member from Missouri. And, you know, th these are these are the challenges of having a coalitional coalitional party. And we uh, Democrats expose and try to attack Republicans based on divisions they have. Uh, and Democrats are going to offer up some real opportunity for Republicans to uh, to, to, to get a wedge in the party. I mean, those three groups you listed uh, from the article, center-left, uh, the, the GOP hits are most effective with center-left voters, independents, and Hispanic voters. Uh, uh, yeah, those are three pretty big, They're pretty significant constituencies. Yeah. Pretty critical. Uh, and if you don't find a way to hold on there... Uh, yeah, you're in for a really serious... A shellacking. A shellacking of Melissa, who uh, has a stellar memory, uh, said shellacking because that is what Barack Obama called uh, his defeat, uh, his party's defeat in 2010 yep. uh, in the midterms. He says, uh, we really uh, had a... We were shellacked. It was a shellacking. Yes, because again, it's always good to remind everybody. I, I mean, it's starting to become sort of common knowledge, but not that common, that uh, the party that has the presidency pretty much always loses, almost always. Yeah, no, no that's so, the historical but, but here, trend. But I think yeah. what the triple, DCCC is trying to do here is trying to minimize those losses as much as they possibly can Absolutely. so that Joe Biden can still get his agenda done. No, I, I think that's exactly right. Although, you know, I think, um, you know, the margin in both the House and the Senate are all, already so small yes. that, that there's really not a lot of, of room, uh, not a lot of room to work with. But obviously, we'll continue to keep an eye on how the midterms are developing. Uh, it'll be interesting to see. Um, and obviously, like, I, like we noted with Speaker Pelosi's comments, and, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see what moves the party makes as we get closer to the midterms to try and look here's the critical thing i'm gonna let you all in on a secret to the culture war battles uh that has been true basically since 2006 which is the party that is viewed as the aggressor is the party that loses the party that's viewed as the aggressor is the party that loses. Mm -hmm. The reason why this DCCC poll is so troubling is that just over a year out from January 6, 2021, right. that's so uh, uh, just you know, uh, a, a week or two after the RNC uh, 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 took action to declare... Uh, what happened on January 6th is legitimate political debate. Uh, you know, just go down the line. Marjorie Taylor Greene, Donald Trump's rallies and the way that he continues to provoke sort of culture war debates on his side. The, the, the fact that you have, you have center left voters, you have Hispanic voters who are concerned that Democrats are too focused on culture war issues, that Democrats are the aggressors in the culture war. Uh, that is a, um, that does not bode 
that that does not bode bode well at at, at all. Um, uh, it, it is um, that is not something that should be happening. Um, um, uh, but there's there are legitimate reasons for it, and Democrats ought to be attentive to. Uh, to, to those causes and, and the role that they've they've played in, in contributing to them, uh, Melissa. Let's let's move to this incredible. I just thought it was so well, especially the open. You know, I yeah. wanted to just keep reading. So if anything, I was a little let down by the end, just because it's like, oh, I, you know, you just felt like it could go. Um, like it had more more legs, but why don't you uh, why don't you sort of introduce this article and 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 what you thought about it, and then I have a couple questions for you about it. Right. So the article in the top five this week that we really wanted to discuss is this New York Times article. It's by Noreen Malone, um, and it was just published a couple of days ago, and it's called "The Age of Anti Ambition." Um, the subtitle, When 25 Million People Leave Their Jobs, It's About More Than Just Burnout. Um, and again, it's a part of the Future of Work issue in the New York Times Magazine. Right, so Maureen, um, she covers a lot of ground in this article and a lot more ground than a lot of typical Future of Work type articles that you know I've been reading over the past year or two. Um, this idea of anti-ambition or unambition or, un- or unambitiousness isn't entirely new because I actually went and Googled and I thought, um, who else has been talking about this? And, you know, a year ago there was a Guardian article on this and then a couple other like sort of like bloggy or magazine type websites have been talking about this, um, especially since the pandemic has hit. And Maureen talks about how because people are working from home, there's kind of a veil that's being lifted, at least for the office set of workers, or you know, she also brings in class a bit into it, which is also why I love how this article is so nuanced. She calls them white collar workers, and that's deliberate for a reason, um, where working from home is lifting up the veil, where they're saying that the happiness index in the general social survey for Americans since the pandemic has hit, um, the happiness of Americans across the board has just plummeted. Um, despite the fact that, you know, people are commuting less and people are spending less money and people have more, you know, economic power uh, because, you know, they are spending less money on food out, their commute, et cetera, et cetera. But why are Americans so unhappy? Why are 25 million Americans suddenly resigning? Um, especially, in, you know, it could be as a response to, you know, a movement like girl bossing of like, she calls it like the Obama era of 2007 to 2015. And then she cites, you know, 2016 happens um, with the Trump years and something sort of switched there as well. So there's like a lot of different factors that she presents in this article as to why suddenly there's this, you know, what a lot of people in the media are calling the great resignation. Um, Why are suddenly people saying, is work my main identity? Is it my only real identity? You know, am I am I nothing but my work? People are starting to ask questions like this. And I mean, you and I actually talk about this quite a bit. I talk about this this idea with my girlfriends a lot, um, where uh, I see just in general chatter on Twitter. I mean, you can name a platform, Twitter, um, uh, TikTok, Instagram, where I'm seeing a lot of people sort of say, you know, is my career number one? I don't think it is. And, you know, I just I just work to live. I don't want to live to work. Um, 
I'm seeing these comments and these types of TikToks or postings like everywhere, especially over the last six to 12 months, sort of a bit more into the pandemic, I think, as work from home has sort of hit people more. And then Maureen also goes into um, those in the service industry, customer service, um, hotel industry, where the hotel industry in particular has lost a ton of workers, the healthcare industry, which 400,000 fewer workers are in healthcare than than there were than there was um, before the pandemic. Um, talking about essential workers, the ones who are told that you know we need you, versus the non-essential workers, the people who are sitting in offices, thinking like, well, if I'm non-essential, you know, am I just doing busy work all the time? Such a keen, such a keen yes. insight. Yeah, this idea that you know, um, it, well, a, a she sort of taps in on the you know potential she wonders about the cynicism of you know is essential and non-essential uh basically euphemisms for expendable and non-expendable yes i thought that was a great insight and then yeah this 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 insight you just you just mentioned about uh sort of the the nihilism Mm -hmm. of having your work viewed as non-essential even if it's consuming your your life your relationships or or uh uh, the relationships you don't have because you're working so much um i thought it was i I thought that was really helpful uh, in terms of sort of fleshing out this problem a bit but i i agree this is what she describes here rings true to sort of my experience what i sense among people i know and Mm -hmm. groups i'm with I was interested, Melissa, um, uh, I was interested, uh, uh, well, well, actually, just just one more thing, which is uh, she also refers to it uh, as a quitagion, yes. uh, sort of uh, mm-hmm. contagious quitting, which is I think from the New York Times. The contagion uh, aspect is huge here. Yeah. The reason why I mentioned social media is that we know, it's kind of like... A, this almost turned into a trend where you see other people doing it. And maybe it had, you'd thought about it before, but I think there's some sort of inceptioning going on here where people are getting brave and saying, well, if they've quit, then I can quit. And it seems like everybody's quitting. That's what that's what I should do. I think there's a lot of sort of social, uh, just sort of like sociological um, things going on here. And so I'm glad that she mentioned that as well because I do think that there is something just very basic to like human instinct and like human behavior to simply want to follow what other people are doing because it seems like that's what you should be doing. Besides the fact that all of these other reasons that I've already listed and that she has throughout this article, um, the various nuances of, you know, why someone would want to quit. But I actually think that that's also key. Yeah, I mean, so in some ways, the, the, the way this has been playing out it seems to be a actually like rather condensed timeline of um, sort of the um, the culture of self-expression, self-actualization, uh, uh, sort of working itself out. Mm-hmm. I mean, so she she defines this sort of era of uh, optimism. It's basically been like less than a decade. Yeah. And uh, uh, th- this idea of, and obviously this is longer than a decade old, but um, sort of an expanding workforce 
more women entering the yes. workforce and all the potential there. You already mentioned sort of the girl bossing sort of rhetoric, sort of this idea yeah. that leaning in. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, uh, I, I just read an article about Ali Wong, the comedian. Oh. Uh, her her <laughs> new her. she has a new stand up special, but uh, the article quoted one of her old uh, uh, one of her old specials where she jokes, uh, uh, "Everyone's telling me to uh, everyone's telling me that uh, I need to lean in. I just want to lie down." Uh, <laughs> and I just think that's like that's where yeah. we are now, which is which is like actually. Um, Working, uh, uh, work, especially, um, well, so so this is an interesting thing. Work, especially in an institution, but I think there's an aspect of work generally Mm -hmm. uh, that if your aim is to sort of um, pursue sort of an independent acclaim, Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of uh, uh, independent identity validation and expression, uh, work is going to offer a whole range of obstacles to that. Again, particularly when you're in an institution. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then even, you, you know, so I, I think we're seeing one of the reasons why we see an explosion of uh, entrepreneurship, uh, but also among young people in particular, this idea of like, I'm gonna be a, an influencer, like a social media, like part of that is like, I'm gonna work on my terms. Yes. And I'm gonna get paid for being me. Yes. But then people who do that come to understand, oh, I'm not, I'm actually not being me. I'm actually responding to what people like about aspects of me. Mm-hmm. And I'm having to make that all of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just I just think that's I, I think I think those are really interesting dynamics. They um, I, I think they th- this exposes um, the futility of some of the big promises about identity and mm-hmm. uh, sort of self actualization that our culture uh, offers. Um, and that's good for companies. So yes. one thing, and that and that these companies need. So right, it's it's uh, 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 the author of this essay points out, um, you know, talks about the rising discontent at work, and then has this really incredible paragraph. I had not heard of this. Um, she writes, things get weird when employers try to address this discontent. Amazon's warehouse workers have for the past year been asked to participate in a wellness program aimed at reducing on-the-job injuries. The company recently came under fire for the reporting that some of its drivers are pushed so so hard to perform that they've taken to urinating in bottles and warehouse employees for whom every move is tracked live in fear of being fired for working too slowly. But now, for those warehouse workers, Amazon has introduced a program called Amazon. Employees can visit Amazon stations and watch short videos featuring easy-to-follow well-being activities, including guided meditations and positive affirmations. It's self-care with a dystopian bent in which the solution for blue-collar job burnout is screen time. Yeah, 
like wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not surprised that you know, the pandemic sort of has accelerated a lot of these sort of uh, paradoxes that I think people are just sort of figuring out. Basically, when I was reading this article, I thought, you know what this makes me think of? This makes me think of the movie The Truman Show. Yeah, 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 sure. Where it seems like everybody's Truman in in this sense. Not everybody, obviously, because she does mention the end of the article that some people were actually really ha- happy with their work and still find fulfillment out of it and are, you know, girl-bossing their way up, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but it seems like every a lot of people are Truman and they're suddenly they're figuring out like I'm kind of in this fishbowl the veil has been lifted and actually things aren't as great as I was taught or as I was told throughout my life growing up that if you do a B and C then you will be happy right right right, right. so a lot of this is around the definite for me yes. reading through the lines a lot of this is around the definition of happiness yes um, and how and sense of fulfillment and Absolutely. how do we achieve that fulfillment? Um, because you see it all the time. People think th- this thing, this pinnacle, this thing on the hill yes. is what I need in order to finally feel happy or fulfilled. And a lot of times when people finally get there, because a lot of times the way you get there is usually pretty crooked or, you know, maybe... It involves a lot of compromises a, and sacrifices. A lot of compromises and, and sacrifices yeah. where finally getting there you're still not happy and then you become even more unhappy because you're like well what is next what else is there a lot of people are asking what else is there that nihilism that that she was bringing up and you yeah. brought up um here um i'm not surprised that this uh sort of anti-ambition these types of thoughts are happening in an age of loneliness yeah we've been talking about loneliness for a good decade now I'm not surprised that it's happening. Obviously, like I've already said, in an age of hype, in an age of hyperconnectivity, I'm not surprised it's happening in a polarized age, a hyperpolarized age, because we know that people are already living far apart from one another. People don't have as many friends, or you tend to live with all the same people. Um, and I think that this sort of plays a role. I don't, I'm not surprised this is happening in an age of sort of growing um, spiritualism, like that yes. Amazon, that Amazon thing, yes. is like a literal key example of that of mindfulness and like positive affirmation all of these come come from various forms of spiritualism um and yes continue in in capitalism when you mix a spiritualism that might not actually be grounded to like grounded to something real real and ultimate plus capitalism place on top of that or late stage capitalism really place on top of that you, you you get people who again feel like Truman and you you know you get you know handed this you should go sit in the pod for Amazon for an Amazon session and you kind of feel like <laughs> what is the point? Yes. I feel ten times more depressed by being told I need to go in there after I'm being watched by Big Brother every ten seconds if I'm filling up a box fast enough for somebody who ordered you know like a uh, you know a cat Fan. liquor off of, wow. of Amazon. Yes. Like, none of this is surprising to me. Yes. Oh goodness, yeah. I mean, that's that's like four episodes right there, Melissa. I think you're spot on. And I and I think also in an age of people who are sort of discussing. I mean, you've already brought up identity, but what comes with identity most of the time is where do I belong and a sense of belonging. And again, if it's not more into anything real, you're just constantly swimming in like the Mariana Trench of the Atlantic. Like, right. So if you're if you're told, <laughs> you know. You, 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 you'll find belonging 
as a member of the Amazon family. You know, uh-huh. we're we're a family here. Which and you, uh, uh, Google, you can you can you can uh, you can sleep here. You can play ping pong here. You this is this is where you belong. But that's all a corporate gimmick. That, yes. That's all. That's all HR. Uh, that, that's all worker retainment. That's not actual community. That, that that's not actual. It's not able to live up to what it's what it's promising. What I thought of when I uh, heard about the meditation uh, and self, you know, words of self affirmations, um, is there was a New York Times story we we loved and, and thought was really important. Maybe now it's a couple years old. Um, we, we included in the Substack uh, about schools, exclusive schools that were tech-free. Yep. Uh, so this was a New York Times story. We'll try and look it up and include it in the notes. But New York Times story about how you know just at like the at the time where poor school districts are getting foundation money and you know issuing press releases about the fact that they were gifted iPads for all their students and now their students are going to have access to all this technolo- technology that you know has, ke- has kept them from sort of keeping pace with wealthier school districts and those in wealthier zip codes the wealthy zip codes and the wealthy school districts are going tech free because uh, because their their students are just absolutely foundering uh, with all of the pressures, distractions, mental health issues that come from constant access to uh, to screens and digital communication. And I thought of that when I thought of, um, you know, th- th- this meditation, self-affirmation to blue-collar workers kind of thing, which is, uh, uh, it, it is uh, sort of giving to the masses uh this sort of counterfeit good that that actually uh does 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 more to sort of like promote the interests of the well-off than it does to actually provide um real support to folks who need it yeah that's just really yeah, one really of the things that i wish and again she only had a new york times article to you know whatever it is like i thought honestly it was longer than usual but it is a magazine piece but the class issues that go into this yeah um it's something that i would read a whole other chapter specifically from her on, on that um there's so much more in this article yeah. i think we should uh but i she compared sort of the madmen Yes. Uh, uh, sort of approach to work with the succession approach to work. So there, this article is definitely worth reading. We hope you'll check it out um, uh, and let us know what you think about it. Does this jive with, with your thoughts? I mean, one thing we didn't discuss on this episode is, you know, sort of the faith and work movement and, mm-hmm. and what all of the development around sort of um, a Christian approach to work might uh, might offer in this moment. Uh, my, you know, spoiler alert, I think a lot more than uh, meditation and uh, words of affirmation. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's a great article. Hope to uh, have a conversation, uh, conversation with all of you about it. Uh, but Melissa, I, I was thinking, uh, you asked me what I want to drink, and I had a specific answer, uh, but we didn't talk about it. And this is a glass mm-hmm. of Pinoletto from, that I found at a wine store. Close by, yeah. 
um, from Tremonti. Yes. Tremonti is a vineyard uh, in uh, just outside of, I believe, outside of Imola. Yes, Imola. which is which That's is right. in Emilia Romagna. Melissa and I had the great pleasure mm-hmm. of visiting, meeting David, yes. uh, who's uh, one of the owners of the vineyard. Uh, we actually found this vineyard because uh, it is one that Anthony Bourdain went yes. to in uh, like one of the early episodes of like his his Travel Channel show. Yeah, because um, yeah, Emilia Romagna is looked down on when it comes to wine. Emilia mm-hmm. Romagna is more known as, as the food region, um, the best food region, and I completely agree with that. Um, but it's not really a wine region. But vineyards like Tremonti are producing wonderful wines because I'm just not a wine person, but I will drink a Tremonti wine. Yeah, no, it's great. So uh, it makes me think of a lot of wonderful times that, that we know. had. And uh, uh, Those visiting rolling with, a million hills. Yeah, no, for sure. And I uh, can't wait to get back. Uh, well, hey, folks, it was wonderful talking with you again this week. Do uh, check out that IFIC report. And you'll hear about that more throughout the week. Uh, if you're on, uh, if you subscribe to the Substack, uh, you already have the report in your inbox. Just like you'll get this episode directly uh, in your inbox, you could sign up at reclaiminghope.substack.com. Uh, and would also, again, ask you to leave a review uh, of the podcast uh, on iTunes, Spotify, wherever uh, you you listen, we want to hear from you, and it will help with the algorithm or whatever. Uh, Melissa, any final words? We're gonna go play Roller Coaster Tycoon. Okay, so <laughs> Melissa was so excited to learn beyond excited that uh, I uh, found Roller Coaster Tycoon or like a Roller Coaster Tycoon kind of game. Uh, and and so yeah, we've been doing that like for the last couple of nights because because you grew up on it, right? I played that game so much, I knew all the cheat codes. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd get unlimited money and just create just giant parks. I loved that that it was a computer game, um, but now we're playing it on the PS whatever the it P- is. Yeah, exactly. And no, it, it's it's uh, it's fun and it's fun playing a game where you're like. Uh, talking to me like I'm an idiot because you you already like have your strategies down like you're like you should have seen me co- <laughs> you should have seen me coaching Michael through building a roller coaster last night yeah no 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 it was it was good I could use a firm hand every now and then <laughs> all right folks this has been where is the love uh, it's it's right here it's uh, always good to be doing this episode uh, yes. doing this podcast having this conversation with you we'll talk to you next week bye.